Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us on the radio today is Marc Andre Argentino from Quebec, who is a researcher into. QAnon and conspiracies and misinformation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Marc-Andre, when we booked you, you know, I'm realistic, maybe pessimistic, but a little naive part of me was like, well, this will all be over. Uh, We can just look back on QAnon and say, what was that? But it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. No, it does not look like it's going away anytime soon. And January 6th really kind of sealed the deal on that. I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised that it was going to continue, but I was kind of surprised to see QAnon at the forefront of what took place on, on Capitol Hill. One of the sort of iconic images from January 6th is the QAnon shaman. Could you explain who that is? So the QAnon shaman is a persona within the QAnon movement from Arizona. He was never really what you'd call an influencer in the online space, but he was always present at the rallies where QAnon was present, uh, some of the Trump rallies. Like he, he has this easy way to appear with the horns and the Wookiee suit and you know, the tattoos. So he, he kind of had this cartoony representation of the movement. But I think at the same time, that picture of him on Capitol Hill really seals kind of like a lot of the arguments I've been making that one, we do need to take QAnon seriously, even though it appears superficially silly, and some would tend not to take it seriously. And two, that online conspiracy theories have offline violent impacts. And I think he's a good poster boy for some of the lessons learned, at least for January 6th. In relation to the shaman, he seems to combine a whole range of different kinds of symbology. Is there much sense to his public representation? In There's some sense from like the QAnon perspective. I think his tattoos are a unique appropriation of his. It does kind of fit with the far-right spaces the individual inhabits, but that is a whole other different ballgame. The costume itself not really but the whole shamanism quote-unquote alternative spirituality does fit within the QAnon movement i've talked a bit about that more on the female side of the conversation with the the group i call pastel QAnon. but there is you know this esoteric alternative spiritualities environment within QAnon that overlaps with the conspiracy theory space and he's also in the alternative health and alternative remedy space as well you know he did make the headlines for wanting to have organic food in prison even though organic is the title that's given by the 
the government, which he believes is a deep state. So there's some weirdness going on there, but it, it does fit in with this space where you are con- you are predisposed to a specific type of information, misinformation, and information spaces that you would make you a little bit more susceptible to QAnon versus someone who might not be in those areas. Speaking of disinformation, it was also alleged, I think, by uh, Lynn Wood, among others, that the shaman was, in fact, another person called Spencer Sunshine, an anti-fascist researcher and writer. That doesn't appear to be true. Have you been able to detect the presence of undercover anti-fascists at the Capitol Hill rally? No, the whole Antifa narrative dressed up as like MAGA supporters or anything like that is a narrative that's quite common in these far-right spaces when, you know, there are acts of violence or criminality as a way of deflecting from the core movement in the sense that QAnon has always portrayed itself, let's say, as nonviolent. Well, they will typically push a false flag narrative when something happens. So all the instances of violent behavior that actually I published in the, the in CTC Sentinel earlier this summer, looking at QAnon as a public safety threat, all of those within the community are considered false flags or not real believers. And it's a way of deflecting it. And even after the events, QAnon basically called Jake Angeli, who's the QAnon shaman, basically a uh, a false flag crisis actor. They found his acting page and he does voice actors and they said, oh, see, he's just another crisis actor. And it was the same thing for uh, the woman that was killed, uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was a QAnon supporter. And even then, QAnon's calling her as well a crisis actor and kind of just, you know, throwing her under the bus saying this is part of the plan for the deep state to really put a target on us. So it's it's a way to deflect and it's a common perception, but it really shows how cutthroat QAnon is and that doesn't matter how diehard of an adherent you are, whether you're going to go all out in your appearance and your presence at rallies or you're literally going to die for the cause. Ultimately, you're just going to be thrown under the bus by them. There's something I've noticed that there's been more than a few people who've made headlines for involvement in conspiracy-related things, especially here in Australia, who they have that thing where people find their acting page and that seals you know, the confirmation that they're a crisis actor. And there's also a lot of people that are involved in the uh, MLM space that are getting involved in these things. Is it something about this sort of person who is, you know, on the grind that gets attracted to these things? So part of it is there are going to be grifters in this space, especially in the MLM area when I was doing research on Pastel QAnon, which is basically the community of women on Instagram who were influencers because of their personal trainers, they're selling Tupperware, they're selling Avon or whatever MLM scheme they're going to be in, whether it's camels milk or they they were in this space and they had a certain authority by peddling alternative health remedies or alternative lifestyles to a specific audience that trusted them. So getting into conspiracy theories, you do tend to navigate similar information ecosystems. So if you're going to consume alternative health facts during a pandemic, it's not going to be a mainstream site that's going to be supporting, you know, colloidal silver as a cure for for covid but if you're on a site where they're going to sell that to you they're probably going to have other conspiracy theories alongside so it makes it brought a convergence basically of different spaces and it was something where now you're seeing anti-vaxxers with far-right spaces you're seeing mlm alternative health spaces with conspiracy theories and far-right spaces so the the pandemic has kind of brought these worlds together which is why we're seeing different communities within this space the one classic example i guess would be david ike in the uk He's always been into this like alternative health space and penalties conspiracy theory. So there is a precedent historically for this type of stuff. But I think there's a lot more of it now, especially with you know how our digital ecosystems work. There seems to be a, a quite profound level of uh, mistrust in government and other public authorities in the US and, and of course in Australia and elsewhere. Do you think that the ways in which this kind of 
paranoia and resentment expresses itself through cue. Do you think there's other ways of cultivating a, a more healthy sensibility with regards critically assessing government policy and so on? And, and what is it that that's allowed for these kinds of less healthy responses to flourish, do you think? In a way, it's not so... The internet hasn't given like more conspiracy theories in a sense because they've always been around, but it's given a new boost to them in the way that they're able to cross different ecosystems at a faster rate than they would in, let's say, print. So it's a way that like the polls basically historically have said about half of Americans believe in conspiracy theories and we're similar to what we're seeing now. But it's really about how these conspiracy theories are having impacts in the offline world. Like no, no one's really committed violent crimes for trying to discover proof of the moon landing or no one's really run up for office for that cause. But now we're seeing something very differently. And it, it kind of shows how we need to maybe have a little bit more transparency. And this is something that I've brought up a couple of times, at least from like my academic perspective. But this also applies, I guess, for government spaces and other ones where as an academic, we like academia has always been in these ivory towers. Information has been closeted and we try to keep it away or gatekeep it from, from the public in a way. And for for the past year, I was a public scholar at Concordia, and I've made an effort to really share the information that I get from my research as widely as possible. And it's been really interesting to be able to engage with a wider public with my research, but also seeing their reactions and seeing that they're able to pull out information from it. And I think it's the same thing with government in a way where these policies at times are complicated or convoluted, or the mechanisms for politics and policymaking is not as clear to the public. So having a way to make this relationship with your constituents or the wider community in your new nation to be able to make some transparency there and explain how decisions are made, I think would be a way to alleviate some of these conspiracies. As well as, you know, providing more resources to education when it comes to history and political sciences and some of the like sociology and anthropology as a way of understanding how our societies work. It's just there's a lot of like mysticism around that or a lot of like mythical history and providing resources in this space would be one way to inoculate people against consuming conspiracy theories. But in another way, if you are going to consume conspiracy theories, it's not abnormal. This is part of our human psychological makeup. It's a coping mechanism that we have to better understand what's going on around us. Basically, the, the whole function that it works is that it's the time humans would be going out in the woods and a spider bit you and then the person died, you have an inherent fear that's made of the spider. It might not have been the spider that killed you. Maybe it's because you ate some poison berries, but your mechanisms are made to adapt to understand and infer specific decisions as a survival mechanism. And that's how people cope with a lot of complex situations. So when you want to understand why there is a fluidity, let's say in 2020, around the policies regarding COVID or why there's not enough action being taken against child trafficking, it's a lot easier to scapegoat and blame some global malign force rather than trying to understand the complexities behind these mechanisms. You know, the pandemic at a global scale was not something we were necessarily prepared for. We're learning about the diseases we're going on. So the recommendations and policies will change. Child trafficking is a complex circumstance. It's not just, you know, tracking and arresting all the pedophiles. There's a whole other process behind it when it comes to investigation, finding where the content is, tracking down these individuals and the content and bring them to court. So it's it's a way to cope. And I think that is another element is to kind of move the stigma away from it as well, where conspiracy belief is, and it was up until the 20th century, an accepted form of belief and accepted behavior. And it's kind of maybe reducing the scapegoating around that and providing resources to inoculate people from it would be a way to reduce this. I know that was a long roundabout way to get to the answer to the question. <laughs> There's also a strong sense of religiosity that surrounds QAnon. And I wonder what relationship do you think that has to, I guess, the, the role that religion plays in US politics more generally? So 
it does function as a religion in a way. So in the U.S., there's going to be a group that I've been calling the Q-Evangelicals. So, you know, evangelicalism in the U.S. has, in some cases, especially neo-charismatic movements and specific other Catholic and Christian movements, have ties to the far right, and they are linked to conspiracism. And there's an inherent relationship between some of the conspiracy theories in QAnon and these movements, mainly because QAnon is apocalyptic in the sense that you need to go through this massive event that'll put people through suffering and destroy democracy as we see it before you're presented with this kind of golden age at the end. And there's a resonance there. And obviously, the US is a majority Christian country. So that has echoed and resonated. But QAnon in and of itself has evolved from a conspiracy theory three years ago to a religious and political ideology. And it's something that I've been basically calling a hyper-real religion, which Actually, it's linked to uh, an Australian sociologist who coined the term, uh, Adam Possumai. But it's basically that people make meaning through popular culture, and they receive that, that meaning-making in a parallel way to religious tradition. Examples would be something like you know, Jediism or Matrixism or Tolkien spirituality, where these pop culture films have created real-life ideological systems around it. And this is kind of what we're seeing with QAnon, is that you know the belief in the movement is not about facts anymore but it's really about faith. They're really trying to address the problem of evil. So events for these people are not random and they give a clear enemy for which these people could fight against. And this is kind of like the big battle between good and evil, God and devil, whichever way you want to put it. And the like the impact, it's really not about what QAnon believe in, but it's really what are they doing with their belief system? And this is what we're seeing. They're running for office based on this belief system. They're going to Capitol Hill and participating in an insurrection. They've committed murder, kidnappings. You know, they've flooded hotlines with false tips about child trafficking. It's just it's a belief system that is leading to offline impacts and real-world impacts. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Mark andre Argentino about QAnon. I uh, should probably note, we're recording this on the Monday. Donald Trump is set to be re-inaugurated on the Thursday, wearing the face of Joe Biden. Surely, I mean, I know that it's not going to be the end, but for a lot of people, uh, the inauguration is going to be perhaps a point of no return where they realize that it's not all going to come true. I've seen people saying, you know, Donald Trump's going to take over the emergency broadcast system and, you know, broadcast the mass executions for days before. Uh, when that doesn't happen, uh, what do you think is going to happen? So I think within the QAnon movement in and of itself, they've already pushed the date to March 4th for the quote unquote real inauguration because basically, okay. up until up until 1933 in the United States, inaugurations happened on the 4th of March, and that was changed at that time. So they think that because they're returning to a pure form of the American Republic, they're going to say, oh, this is all a movie. This is a fake inauguration. Trump will really be inaugurated on March the 4th, as it was in the past. And there's a very complex conspiracy going on right now in QAnon circles that borrows from uh, sovereign citizen conspiracy theories where basically as part of the, you know, the storm and the apocalyptic movement that's going on, they're basically seeing that this is all part of the plan and that the military is still in control, as they've been saying for years. 
but that they're kind of returning to the what they're calling the defunct USA core. So the US is a corporation and Trump is not getting, you know, a, tech, a second term because he said in his final statement that this, you know, he won't be at inauguration in January because there's no inauguration. And he says there's going to be a smooth and orderly transition of power, but he never mentioned that it's going to be Joe Biden. And he's saying that the best is yet to come. So what they're basically, it's basically goes back to some weird constitutional witchcraft that they're meddling. But basically, as I was saying, they're going to think that March 4th is when Trump will be inaugurated into the new republic. And it's they're going to win, the storm will come, everything's going to go. And even when that doesn't come to reality, because that is some impossibility, but they believe it anyways, it's still going to be something that they could push to the next goalpost, to the next goalpost. You know, I was mentioned this on Twitter yesterday that basically, you know, they believe that Trump has a time travel machine that Q and the U.S. military have access to quantum time traveling and tunneling. So, you know, when you have the capacity to time travel, you know the future, you know the past, you could really fix your narrative to do whatever you want. But also when you're fixed in this like apocalyptic religiosity, you know, oh, I didn't properly interpret the prophecy. I don't have all the information. You know, the plan is limited to Q, so we misinterpreted it, and it's going to be at a later date. So there's always a way to push it forward. Now, some will definitely be disenfranchised. Some are definitely going to be sick of this movement, but some are definitely going to stay and remain. And those who are sick of the movement are not magically going to go away because the core belief in conspiracy theories doesn't disappear. They're just going to channel that into other groups. And with all the deplatforming that's happened recently, the risk is they'll get recruited by more extreme movements. I guess that that's what I'm wondering. I, I will also say I am constantly underestimating the ability of these people to shift the goalposts. But I guess what I'm wondering is are the, the people who become disenfranchised, are they perhaps more dangerous because they're no longer trusting in the plan and having to go out and enact the plan themselves? Yes and no. Some of them will become a danger to themselves in the sense that this could lead to depression, anxieties. This is all compounded also by what's been happening with the pandemic, especially in the US when you're having economic, political and health impacts. But there is a risk that a lot of these people are just not going to be able to take the like the, the, the effect of running straight into the wall that whatever they've been believing in for the past three years is not coming to fruition. Others might just harden the core to QAnon and just double their efforts in the sense that, oh, the deep state won, they're in control. Trump may have lost, but he gave us three years to awaken a community of believers, and now we could fight on. The challenge is that if you're not up for the information war, the next step is I'm going to take the physical war. We saw some of that on January 6th. It's a taste of what happens when you're primed for a digital conflict that doesn't come to reality, well, you're going to move it offline. And with deplatforming, I've just been monitoring real domestic violent extremists start recruiting in QAnon communities. And that's what's very concerning for the longer term. Speaking of Trump, over the years, he's been prepared to indulge and perhaps implicitly endorse various proponents of QAnon and has obviously used QAnon to his own political advantage, it seems. What do you think he, does he actually have, uh, you know, a concrete opinion about it? And do you think that following his exit from the White House, he'd be prepared to or would think it was useful to further indulge the following that's been created for him via Q? Look, his conspiratorial nature is not something new. He, he was part of these circles. He had some relations with Alex Jones and other media figures from these spaces. So like Donald Trump was a conspiracy believer, maybe theorist. I don't know what you want to call him, but he did frequent these spaces. He's also a populist or you know, getting pretty close to like a neo-fascist. So we're looking in these spaces. They do borrow from 
you know, conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories and populism have this relationship in the sense that they both despise elites. You know, Trump never peddled himself as an elite. He tried to sell himself as an everyday man. He wasn't a politician. He was always an outsider in DC. And the way that he was derisive of the establishment and democracy is what is attractive to conspiracy theorists and QAnon. So he he always tread that line. And as he saw that he was not going to win, it's just when you have nothing to lose, you just go all in now. From a business perspective, it wouldn't surprise me if he tried to create some social media platform, Trump TV or something to profit from this, because there are those that will take advantage of conspiracy theories. And he has a base that he, there is a religious fervor around belief in Trump as they see him as this type of prophetic or messianic figure. And that's something that could be abused and taken advantage of, whether it is for profit or whether it is to target American, but even global democracies, because QAnon is all over the world and Trump was at the center of it. Some of your research involves looking at Q around the world. What, what does Q look like in spaces outside of America, particularly in Europe, I think is something we haven't really talked about. What does Q look like when Trump's not such a big figure? There's two ways that QAnon internationally formed. There were those that believe there is just a one massive global deep state. And while Trump was at the power, the US military and Trump were able to come and help other nations kind of awaken and fight the deep state presence there. So, you know, in the case of, let's say, Australia, there was talks like of earthquakes that happened in summer of 2020. And QAnon in Australia were basically talking about, oh, their Trump US military and Australian military forces are taking out deep underground military bases where the ch- the pedophiles are hiding the kids. So there's that aspect. What I'm seeing more of now and what's kind of popular in Europe is that every country has its own deep state. And the U.S. was the first to awaken to that reality. And now it's the turn of every other country to kind of awaken their own anons or patriots to fight the deep state. So, you know, in France, it was closely tied to the, the Yellow Vest movement. That's how they really brought came in first. In the UK, it was Brexit and the Yellow Vest movement. In Germany, they came with the AFD and the election that happened a few years ago. Italy was through the Five Star Party. Greece was through Golden Dawn. So you're seeing these populist movements, or even in cases like Hungary and Poland, these you know fascist or neo-fascist movements politically are the rallying forces for conspiracy theories and QAnon, and basically the central tenet that global elites are controlling the world and abusing children is the initial core, but then they're reading the QAnon narratives and myths through the lens of their own geopolitics and news. And they're really molding it. So you don't necessarily need Trump anymore. You just need to believe in this massive plot and then scapegoat, whether it's, you know, Macron or Merkel or the queen if you're in the UK and then just turning this scapegoats and then targeting them with all these alternative news sites. Cause there are, conspiracy and disinformation sources in all of these countries. And right now we're seeing in Germany, they're they're mixing with the sovereign citizen movement. Germany is probably the second largest QAnon community in the world right now. And we're really seeing it flourish. Same thing in France right now, they're really flourishing as well. So it does have a strong base in Europe. And it's just something that's not as widely talked about. And even weirdly in places that have very good educations, very good democratic left-leaning societies, you know, I'm thinking of play, like Scandinavian nations, there is still a strong presence for QAnon in, in Denmark and Finland and Sweden. And it's it's really fascinating to see how QAnon is malleable enough to adapt itself to 
multiple countries and multiple political systems and multiple cultures. Well, I think conspiracy and uh, especially, I guess, political conspiracy theories, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I wonder how much is QAnon uh, informed by anti-Semitism? And to what extent do you think it encourages those sorts of expressions? QAnon can be anti-Semitic, and it probably is, but it also depends on the audience consuming basically the the anti-Semitic dimension of the narrative. So the protocols and the blood libel conspiracy do play a key role within QAnon, you know, the whole child sacrifice and abuse that, you know, that is key to to some of the QAnon central tenets. But it really depends on where you're consuming and the individuals behind it. But in most cases, there are, and there is significant issues about that. Interestingly enough, some of the early stuff was not necessarily extremely, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic, mainly because there was a support for Trump's moving the embassy to Israel, but that kind of shifted very quickly. But it's just a way of kind of, historically, you saw that, like, the protocols were linked to the French Revolution and, you know, the whole Marx-Rothschild theorem and Early on, the Rothschild family played a key role in the QAnon movement. But again, if you're going to look at the anti-Semitic nature, yes, you're going to blame some of the elites that will be Jewish, but often people ignore the other elites that are not, that are also mentioned alongside. But again, you're going to see like pictures of, you know, the big mainstream media platforms and all the top like officers or people working there are going to be having their pictures and they'll put the, the Star of David next to them just to show that it's Jewish media. So there is an, a way of scapegoating the Jews that easily blend in. It's widely consumed and accepted. And, you know, there is a lot of the versions of the New World Order theories that are overtly anti-Semitic and they all suggest interpretations to their audience that, they're, that are looking for anti-Semitism by picking up on motifs that are found in the protocols. So when you're thinking of like, you know, Donald Trump's allegation that Hillary Clinton met in secret with international banks to plot the destruction of US sovereignty, if you are already anti-Semitic, it'll be a hint to you that the whole thing was being masterminded by the Jews. Because obviously the Jews since the medieval period have always been tied to their affinity to money, mainly because, you know, no one, no Christian could have been a money handler. So it really depends on the lens of the individual, but the narrative is very easily tied to the Jews, which makes it anti-Semitic. And it's hard to ignore that fact. In terms of the storming of the capital, many seemingly are going to be arrested for their participation. And there's, in other words, there's going to be real world consequences attached to the actions of those motivated by Q. Do you think this is going to have any real impact upon Q's following and their preparedness to take action to support what they understand to be the plan? There's always a risk when these events happen that there will be government overreaction. And there needs to be a reaction. There was an insurrection that happened in Capitol Hill. It was an attack on a democratic institution, on the core of democracy, which is an election. And whoever was present needs to be prosecuted. And I don't think the issue is the due process that will happen there. The the issue is with a new administration coming in, if they want to start a domestic war on terror, it this is where you're going to have potential risks and historically domestic wars or international wars on terror have not been very effective and it's i think it's an important time to start to understand how to think creatively outside the box when dealing with the issue and it does need to be taken care of but there is you know we don't want to scapegoat these individuals we do not want to make the situation worse because we want to make sure that 
we could de-escalate the situation and provide resources to try to pull people out of this movement. And you can't do that if you're threatening them with mass arrest, putting them on no-fly lists or whatever. So I think that it's important to also understand that QAnon is not just, it is a, a wide amorphous movement and there are violent extremist segments of QAnon, but not all of QAnon is in that space. And it's going to be important to be able to tease that out to not radicalize further those who are not necessarily in the violent extremism space. But it will probably curb some people, but it, you know, there's still a pandemic in the U.S. with massive amount of new cases every day, a large amount of deaths. There's still going to be a huge economic impact. Half the population still voted, almost half the population still voted for Donald Trump. And there's still a huge amount of social polarization that needs to be healed. It's not that magically on Inauguration Day, you know, Biden comes in, Democrats have the House and the Senate, that it's just going to, everything's going to be okay. There is a lot of work, and I think there is more work than just four years to heal this because this didn't just start with Trump. The like fomenting populist movements, the growth of neo-fascism in the U.S. is not something that happens overnight. And this is something that needs to be taken care of to actually reduce the amount of conspiracy theories and violent extremists that are present. Well, Marc-Andre, we'll have to leave it there for the radio, but we'll have a couple more questions on the podcast version of the show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find Marc-Andre on Twitter at at underscore M-A Argentino. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And just before we go, Andy, uh, we've been asked to tell people that on the 26th of January, there will be a COVID safe invasion day rally. To that end, there is a need for marshals and there'll be some marshal training on Saturday morning at Carlton Gardens. You can get more info at tinyurl.com slash invasion hyphen day hyphen 2021. It's also got the whole COVID safe plan for the rally itself. We'll catch you next week. All right, back to the questions. Has the narrative of QAnon shifted significantly? Do you think it seems like the uh, children in the tunnels have taken a bit of a back seat to the the stop the steal stuff? Is is that correct? It is correct, and QAnon is very much a reactive movement. So in the summer, the whole save the children narrative really came out of the fact that the initial actions from Twitter and Facebook took place at the end of July, which in the U.S. kind of lined up with the Save the Children's campaign where they do all their annual fundraising. So someone in QAnon decided to hijack the Save the Children hashtag um, to, you know, own the libs basically and get back at them for for censoring their, their own hashtags. What that had as an impact was actually it pilled a whole new segment of the population into QAnon. And so that that kind of took precedent. After that died down, we did see a return to COVID with a second wave and all the messaging around, don't go see your family for you know Thanksgiving, don't do Halloween, that type of stuff. So then there was the whole reopen and mass stuff. But with the election, it really came down to stop the steal. And that just had momentum, not only because of the election result, but people like Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell, Ron Watkins were on Twitter and really pushing this narrative but also, you know, the Trump campaign, Trump himself, people in his administration were openly advocating for a fraudulent election and called for people to come and rally on the 6th. And this is the type of momentum that just went on for two months and two weeks. It also it feels like the sci-fi stuff might be coming to the fore. Is, is that something that you've witnessed? Could you explain what that's all about? 
Um, are you talking about like the extraterrestrial? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, there is a very decently sized segment of the QAnon population that does believe in extraterrestrials that Q is an alien that is embodied by the spirit of John F. Kennedy Jr. And he's the one that's helping Trump with the aliens to, you know, save the world. And they're going to offer us their secret technology that'll cure all our diseases, give us infinite energy and all the food. But we need to defeat the evil humans that are still trying to control the world and stop the aliens. So there is that segment. There's also some that call themselves light weavers that kind of falls a little bit more into the you know, esoteric angel crystal alien type space. It's it's very difficult to really explain briefly without going into a very large rant, but it, it's it's kind of a, a mix of a lot of this new agey stuff mixed with aliens. It's mostly harmless um, other than potential impacts on democratic institutions, but it's still there. And then obviously what happened on Nashville on December 25th, the reptilian conspiracy theory kind of came to the forefront and there is again where they believe these reptilian aliens are coming have come to earth and they feed off our negative energies and this is why they keep making bad things happen so they could live forever um so it is part of it but it's you know the initial core of QAnon really were boomers and they grew up in an age of ufos and roswell and area 51 and you know that type of conspiracy theory really resonated with them and it's something that they're able to transfer to modern conspiracy theories because QAnon is really just this massive umbrella that could absorb any other conspiracy theory into it. Yeah, I saw one of the larger Pleiadian Starseed Facebook groups the other day changed its name to Pleiadian Starseed Patriots. I thought, oh, that's not good. Yeah, no, the the Pleiadian stuff, like, the Pleiadian stuff is interesting. This is the one where they think JFK Jr. is inhabiting <laughs> the, the spirit of an alien called Q. And it's, this is the type of stuff that really got me into conspiracy theories at first is trying to dive into some of the these ones and getting the interesting of why they believe in hollow earths or reptilians or you know aliens it's it it's really a fascinating dive up until you get into like the crossover of violent extremism but it, it does act as a way for people to cope with what is happening in the world again like conspiracy theories are, are really about this this dualism about explaining the problem of evil. And if you have these all-powerful aliens that are here trying to save us from evil human beings, and they'll give us this magical technology that'll make everything better, it's just a way to have these like black and white answers to explain away very complex scenarios. And it's a lot easier to deal with for a lot of people. We've recently seen the uh, evil Jack Dorsey man, the good Donald Trump from Twitter. And that's part of a seemingly more general purge of content on the platform along with a range of other social media platforms what do you make of this you know perhaps belated attempt to stop disinformation what effects do you think it will have on QAnon well I think the big issue right now is that it actually took bodies on the ground before the platforms took this seriously and as a researcher in this space, it is very frustrating because the warning sides have been there. Experts have been screaming at the top of the lungs. And it's not only on Twitter, but at think tanks and meetings. And like it's really been out there. Twitter was the first platform to announce actions against QAnon. The problem is that initial attempt was a PR campaign. It happened right after, you know, pandemic, it, it, basically the video that went viral about vaccines not working and being fake. 
it's it, it was it was there and they had a chance to really take everyone down like they did after the insurrection and what it really shows is that it wasn't a lack of capacity it wasn't a lack of skill it was a lack of will facebook was able to do it in july they did pretty good job because they took a chunk of my research capacity away from me when they take them all down, (laughs) which I don't mind. I had three years of data anyways, but YouTube did the same thing and they were efficient. Now the challenge with deplatforming is you're pushing everyone to these alternative platforms. And it's not only now that you've pushed them to platforms, but then because of everything that happened on January 6th, Parlay couldn't find hosts. Um, Gab was having, was getting DDoS because everyone was joining it. MeWe, Rumble, all these alternative platforms couldn't keep up with the influx of people because they weren't built to receive all these individuals. So what happened is they ended up on places like Telegram, which normally Telegram's a messaging app. There's nothing wrong with it. It's used in many countries to subvert authoritarian regimes, but it's also a place for the far right and violent extremists to reside. And QAnon, especially international QAnon, had a presence on there for two years already and there was a convergence between violent extremists there and QAnon but now with you know some of the QAnon chats have hundreds of thousands of people in them it's just a huge pool of recruitment and this is it now you've scapegoated an entire population and it's not only you know QAnon believers or violent extremists but it was these conservative MAGA crowds that weren't necessarily probably the people you really they're probably people you want to target because they were toxic but they weren't necessarily you know violent extremists and what you're doing is you're pushing these people into spaces that makes them nice big juicy recruits telegram is not necessarily the same thing as social media some of the people are definitely not going to migrate there but those who do are definitely going to be targets for recruitment and i think long term we're probably going to see a growth in some of the more extremist movements i don't think it's going to be massive because obviously it's not something that's attractive to everyone but you did push them in that way i think it's going to stabilize and we're probably going to see them go to parlay or other platforms or whatever if trump opens trump will come source and people are going to go there but i think that it ultimately it is going to lead to an increase on far-right extremists and that is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with and i think there this is something that could have been avoided if the platforms and governments had come together with researchers and civil society and actually thought of a structured way to deal with this rather than waiting for an insurrection and people to get killed. We've seen QAnon colonize at least fringes, if not some of the more mainstream features of the Republican Party. Do you envisage QAnon further consolidating its hold on the Republicans? And how do you think, what's the kind of future direction of the Republicans given this seemingly quite significant pressure from within and outside the party to promote uh, QAnon conspiracy thinking. I think that those who have been promoting QAnon within the party are ultimately going to get pushed out. Uh, We've already seen Marjorie Taylor Greene got suspended today. Lauren Bobbert probably brought a gun into Capitol Hill when she didn't want to go let the guards look into her bag. I think individuals like that are not necessarily going to survive in the political environment that's going to return to some type of normality in the next few years. And the GOP, it, it is going to depend what happens under the Biden administration. Again, if you, the pendulum, like the political pendulum swings too far left, the pushback is that it might swing further right when it comes back the other way. It's really going to depend what happens. But I think that most of the QAnon peddlers are going to be pushed away because no one's going to want to be associated with the insurrection on January 6th. They're going to do 
what they need to do to save their political career and their connections. And they're going to try to return to some type of normalcy. Um, again, it's hard to predict what's going to happen with the pandemic. We don't know how the Biden administration is going to come in, what type of policies are going to put in. So it's very hard to predict. But I don't think this is very much doom and gloom. But democracy does take a lot of work and it takes effort. And I think that, you know, both parties, but also countries where QAnon are thri- is thriving right now, need to make sure that they do the work needed to strengthen their democracies. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Mark andre Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. For years, our government has subjected people seeking asylum to torturous conditions. The Minister for Home Affairs was supposed to care for them, but instead they suffered enormous physical and psychological harm. Now, those refugees are fighting for accountability and justice. On their behalf, the National Justice Project is taking legal action against the government for negligence and for breaching their duty of care. To support 50 asylum seekers in their fight for justice against the Minister for Home Affairs, please donate at justice.org.au. The National Justice Project is a 3CR supporter.